There is no doubt that the rise of social media platforms has created a more narcissistic generation of young and old. Narcissism is a personality characteristic that can involve grandiose exhibitionism, beliefs relating to entitlement, and exploiting others for personal gain. Sound familiar? This is generally a generation that doesn't shun the limelight and calls out to the world to look at me. And this mean generation of young and old has a very hard time being grounded and humble and focused on spiritual and biblical things. Because spiritual and biblical things often point to others. Interestingly, as Nitaani Obiero observes, looking at social media in the context of influencing a lucrative new career which is based on social media, perhaps it's not narcissism, but younger generations have simply found a hack which leads to bigger monetary rewards. The most important thing to understand in the social media landscape is that attention is a currency. And people who attract the most attention are often the ones who reap the most rewards. Nitaanu continues, however, we have to recognize that the ability to attract attention is in itself a talent. It might not be a talent that older generations find respectful or necessarily understand, but it is becoming increasingly important for a lot of the new wave of careers, such as being a social media influencer or YouTube star. What may be mistaken for narcissism might simply be a new model for success in the contemporary culture. In essence, there is no denying that younger generations are more narcissistic than the last, but they are also the most emotionally fragile, the so-called snowflake generation, and the least confident due to constantly being on display, the downside of social media. Like many generations before, millennials and Gen Z are far from perfect but they're also trying to carve out their own niche using the tools they have to their advantage. Nitaanya concludes, if a slight increase in narcissistic tendencies is a byproduct of that, then perhaps that's something we'll just have to deal with. Well, my friends, I don't think we have to just accept the rise in narcissistic tendencies. We have to address it head on. Because if the current culture sees attention as a currency, and people who attract the most attention are the ones who reap the most rewards, then the look-at-me culture is not just about self-gratification anymore because there's money to be made. And with wealth and prosperity involved, who doesn't want to shout, look at me? As we continue our sermon series entitled Voyager, studying the journeys of the Apostle Paul as recorded in the inspired scriptures, we come now to Acts chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 14. Even though there wasn't social media back in Paul's time, there was a major possible look-at-me moment. And how Paul handled the situation is a great lesson for how we can push back at the look-at-me culture and guard against me-first thinking. I will present four biblical principles for how to do this. I read now verses 1 to 7 of Acts chapter 14. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. 
when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. If you remember from last week, Paul and Barnabas were driven out of Antioch and Pisidia, and now the Bible tells us they are sharing the gospel message in Iconium, which was the easternmost city of the region of Phrygia in the Roman province of Galatia. As they did in other cities, the first thing they did was they went to the local synagogues to preach the gospel. The Bible tells us many Jews and Gentiles believed in Jesus, but many also did not. As it happened in other cities, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the unbelieving Gentiles to persecute Paul and Barnabas. However, they were not deterred and continued to stay in the area for a long time, boldly preaching the Word of God and doing miracles which authenticated their message. But the persecution came to a head when the unbelieving Jews and Gentiles attempted to abuse and stone them. And they didn't stick around for the physical opposition as we talked about last week and continued on to the cities of Lystra and Derbe and the neighboring region of Lyconia, still in the province of Galatia. I read now verses 8 to 10. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Lystra is a Roman colony about 20 miles south of Iconium. Apparently, there were very few Jews living in this colony that there were no synagogues for Paul and Barnabas to visit. But they did run into a man who was crippled since birth. I want you to notice something carefully, the sequence in verse 9. The man first heard Paul speaking and sharing the gospel message, the truth about Jesus Christ. Paul then saw that this man seemed to respond to the gospel message and that he had faith. This man's faith was such that he believed that the one true God which Paul preached about through his power could save him from his condition. And because Paul realized that this man's faith was genuine and well-placed, he told the crippled man to stand up. And the man, by faith, stood up, leaped up, and began to walk. Part of the miraculous healing was that this man didn't suffer from any sort of muscle atrophy being crippled since birth. He was immediately able to walk. I read now verses 11 to 13. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in a Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of man. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. The Bible tells us the people were in marvel that this man, whom they knew was crippled since birth, and whom they probably saw every day crippled, was now leaping and walking. And so they spoke in their local Lyconian language, saying, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of man. Or in other words, the gods have taken on human form and are with us. Paul and Barnabas didn't understand what they were saying because Greek, which was the common language spoken in the Roman Empire, was what they knew. I'm sure if they understood the local dialect, Paul and Barnabas would have immediately corrected them. The people said that Barnabas was the Greek god Zeus and Paul was the Greek god Hermes 
as Zeus's messenger. And if you know anything about Greek mythology, you would know that Zeus was the chief of the Greek gods. His Roman counterpart was Jupiter. The Romans basically took all the Greek gods and changed their names, but kept their story. They thought Barnabas was Zeus, perhaps because he spoke less and looked more stately and taller compared to possibly physically shorter Paul. You see, Paul means small or little in Latin and Greek. Paul, they thought, was Hermes or Mercury in Roman mythology because he was the speaker. And in Greek mythology, it was Hermes that invented speech and was a gifted speaker. Paul must have been an amazing and eloquent speaker. Well, word got around the Roman colony that Zeus and Hermes were in town, taking on the human forms of Paul and Barnabas. And the Lyconians tried to sacrifice garland oxen to them as Greek gods. Now let me stop here and ask you a question. If you were in Paul and Barnabas' position, how would you respond? Would you savor the adoration a bit? Would you take the accolade and some of the perks of people thinking you were a divine God, even if you were not? What would be your honest, instant response? If even though you knew the healing of the crippled man was completely the work of the Almighty God, would you be tempted to take some credit? I think if we're honest with ourselves, many of us would. We would practice a bit of self-glorification instead of giving God all the glory. Paul Tripp wrote about five ways we can know we're taking God's glory or practicing self-glory. Self-glory will cause you to, number one, parade in public what should be kept in private. He writes, the Pharisees live for us as a primary example of this because they saw their lives as glorious. They were quick to parade that glory before watching eyes. The more you think you've arrived and the less you see yourself as daily needing rescuing grace, the more you will tend to be self-referencing and self-congratulating. You will tend to tell personal stories that make you the hero you will find ways in public settings of talking about private acts of faith. Because you think you're worthy of acclaim, you will seek the acclaim of others by finding ways to present yourself as godly. Number two, be way too self-referencing. We all know it. We've all seen it. We've all been uncomfortable with it. And we've all done it. Proud people tend to talk about themselves a lot. Proud people tend to like their opinions more than the opinions of others. Proud people think their stories are more interesting and engaging than others. Proud people think they know and understand more than others. Proud people think they've earned the right to be heard. Proud people, because they're basically proud of what they know and what they've done, talk a lot about both. Proud people don't reference weakness. Proud people don't talk about failure. Proud people don't confess sin. So proud people are better at putting the spotlight on themselves than they are at shining the light of their stories and opinions on God's glorious and utterly undeserved grace. Number three, talk when you should be quiet. When you think you've arrived, you're quite proud of and confident of your opinions. You trust your opinions, so you are not as interested in the opinions of others as you should be. You will tend to want your thoughts perspectives, and viewpoints to win the day in any given meeting or conversation. This means you will be way more comfortable than you should be with dominating a gathering with your talk. 
you'll fail to recognize your bias and spiritual blindness. Number four, be quiet when you should speak. Self-glory can go the other way as well. Leaders who are too confident, too self-confident, often see meetings as a waste of time because they are proud, they are too independent, so meetings tend to be viewed as an irritating and unhelpful interruption to their busy schedules. The fifth way we can identify if we are self-glorifying ourselves is this. Care too much about what people think about you. Care too much about what people think about you. When you have fallen into the thinking that you're something, you want people to recognize the something. Again, you see this in the Pharisees. Personal assessments of self-glory always leads to glory-seeking behavior. People who think they have arrived can become all too aware of how others respond to them. Because you're hyper-vigilant, watching the way the people in your ministry respond, you probably don't even realize how you do things for self-acclaim. Now back to the story. When Paul and Barnabas realized what was happening and realized the locals thought they were gods in human form, look at their response in verses 14 to 18. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. The Bible tells us Paul and Barnabas were horrified at what these Gentiles were doing, and they quickly tried to stop them. They tore their clothes to express grief at this blasphemous act, and they tried to explain that they were not gods in human form, but simply human beings like them. In fact, they were just people who were preaching about the one true God who was the creator of all things. Paul was correcting their misunderstanding of polytheism to monotheism, that there's only one God. And this one God showed himself to the natural world and blesses people with rain, good crops, food, and joy and gladness. You see, Paul was contrasting his one true God who was loving and giving and even sought to cure the crippled with the Greek gods who only did things for their pleasure and often used humans as their pawns to give them a good laugh, make them happy, or to pleasure themselves. In fact, the Greeks and Romans kept trying to appease or make happy their many false gods in various ways, even to the extent of sacrificing their own children. How terrible. So to this primarily Gentile audience, Paul was presenting the uniqueness of the one true God differing from their false gods. With their words, Paul and Barnabas were trying to distinguish themselves as mortal, normal human beings and ascribed all praise and glory to the living God. Instead of Paul saying, look at me, he was telling the people, look at God. From this, we can see our first biblical principle for how to live in this look-at-me culture. Biblical principle number one. Remove attention and glory from yourself and redirect it to God. Remove attention and glory from yourself and redirect it to God. 
Paul and Barnabas explicitly told the people, do not worship us, do not focus on us, do not give us glory. All glory belongs to God. My friends, this is a great reminder for us to examine our speech. Do you talk about the God who is the creator and created the universe and its complex and intricate ecosystems? Or do you talk about how great you are? Do you reference the God who owns all things and because of His grace gives you what you have? Or do you reference more your own accomplishments and often cite your own hard work? Do you talk more about the God who is the author and giver of all wisdom? Or do you talk about how smart and perceptive you are? Do you talk about the God who gives you all good things for our best, even if it's not what we asked for? Or do you always talk about what you think you are deserving of and how much is owed you? My friends, be careful, because if you talk more about yourself than about God, then you are self-glorifying instead of redirecting attention to the living God. But it's hard not to self-glorify in this digital age. How can we direct focus from us to God in this digital age? Tony Reinke has some great insights. He writes, As you know, our world offers us a feast of new multimedia, new video games every month, new Hollywood movie releases every week, new YouTube videos every minute, new social media updates every second, and a fresh set of Instagram images with every pull-down-to-refresh gesture. It's been called the age of spectacles. This poses massive challenges for anyone facing this inundation of media, competing for the attention of the people we love and are trying to serve. Remember, into our spectacle-loving world, with all of its spectacle-makers and spectacle-making industries, came a greater spectacle, the greatest spectacle ever devised in the mind of God and brought about in human world history, the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ crucified is the hinge of history, the point of contact between B.C. and A.D., where all time collides, where all human spectacles meet one unsurpassed cosmic divine spectacle for the ages. From this moment on, God intended all human gaze to center itself on this climactic moment, as if God says to us, this is my beloved Son, crucified for you, a spectacle to capture your hearts forever. However, the age of digital spectacles is all about wealth, advertising, coercion, popularity, and grabbing more and more attention from us. But even more problematic, the digital spectacles do something worse, worse because of what we sinners do with those spectacles. At root, sinners feed on diversions to escape God. That is the root problem. Yet Christ serves as the ultimate spectacle of the universe. He is the one who captures most our hearts, or should most capture our hearts. We were created to be spectacle beholders and to be captured by the beauty of the cross, a beauty celebrated in the New Testament. So my root concern over our worst digital habits is not TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, Netflix, Marvel, Disney, the iPhone, the Xbox, and it's bigger than pornography, R-rated movies, or MA-rated gaming. The battle is not merely over the sinfulness of the world's spectacle industry. It's a battle over media saturation, even with otherwise wholesome and good media. By the sheer volume of new media in our lives, Christ grows more and more distant from our attention and our affections. 
in digital media, we take our eyes off Christ, off our North Star, lose our direction, and begin to drift off course. Social media and gaming and Netflix binging, the whole spectacle age is all built on one lie. If you give more of your life to your screens, you will become more satisfied. And that's a false promise. It will never deliver. This is the root problem Christians face in the age of the spectacle. Compared to the thrill of our pixelated screens, we lose confidence that Christ really can satisfy me. That's why, my friends, we need to always redirect our eyes and others' eyes to focus on Christ. We need to live out our Christian lives in such a way that we are drawing others to the ultimate spectacle that is Jesus Christ, the most satisfying and fulfilling show available. I read now verses 19 and 20. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. The Bible tells us after a time, the Jews who were antagonistic to the ministry of Paul and Barnabas from the cities of Antioch and Pisidia and Iconium came to Lystra to persuade the unbelievers in this Roman colony to persecute this missionary team. They did so with ferocity and stoned Paul to a point where he was near death and dragged his body outside of the city. But Paul survived through the Lord's protection and healing, and he went back into the city to most likely confront those who had almost stoned him to death. He and Barnabas then left Lystra for Derby the following day. Just imagine the radical change in the treatment of Paul and Barnabas by the people of Lystra. One day they wanted to worship and sacrifice to this missionary team as Greek gods in human form, and then another day they were trying to kill them. What changed? Well, it was clear from Scripture that it was because Paul and Barnabas told them the truth that they were not gods but mere mortals, and that the miracle happened not through their power but by the power of the living God. They essentially told the people of Lystra they have no power themselves. So when Paul and Barnabas refused to accept their godlike status, it was now very easy for wicked men to convince others to take them down as they no longer had protection. My friends, there are certainly negative consequences for not being recognized as someone with power, position, and prestige. It was so for Paul and Barnabas. It is the same for us today. No power and position no protection. You know, we leave ourselves very vulnerable to attack from the world when we redirect glory and attention from ourselves and give it to the one true God, because that makes us unrecognized and insignificant. And when you tell the world you are a nobody, then you will be treated like one and thus vulnerable to attack. That's why everyone in the world is trying to be a somebody in their own definition, because they don't want to bear the consequences of being attacked or looked down upon. We all want to be glorified, lifted up, and held in high esteem. The consequences are not acceptable to us. You know, I wonder if Paul ever thought for a moment while he was being stoned, if he could be a god and he could be treated like a god instead of being persecuted. When the first rock was being hurled, could not Paul have shouted, I'm really Zeus, I'm really Hermes, don't throw any more rocks, lest I unleash my fury. Perhaps the fickle crowd at Lystra 
might have paused and rethought what they were doing. But we see no indication of this on the part of Paul and Barnabas because they accepted the consequences of being unrecognized, insignificant, and a nobody. And thus the rocks kept on coming and almost killed Paul. What allowed Paul and Barnabas to stand their ground for the truth and not try to bring glory to themselves, leveraging the people's thought that they were gods in human form? Well, it is quite clear that they knew their life's purpose. They knew the reason they were living their lives for. It was for the glory of God, by fulfilling the Great Commission. We see this clearly in verse 20. When after Paul was healed by the Lord, he went back into the city in boldness and continued the gospel work in another city, not discouraged by what had happened in Lystra. And this gives us our second biblical principle for how to push back against the look-at-me culture. We have to, number two, accept the consequences of being unrecognized while knowing your life's purpose. Accept the consequences of being unrecognized while knowing your life's purpose. Social media has driven this look-at-me and see what I'm doing culture. It has promoted this idea that the world revolves around me and people should take notice. But ask yourself the following questions. How would you feel or what would be reality if you didn't share about your latest fashion buy, what you were eating at the moment, who were the cool friends you were hanging out with yesterday or where you were traveling? Would you be okay with it? Could you even endure a social media fast where you go without it for a few hours or even a few days? Would you be okay if the world doesn't take notice of you or care about the unimportant things in your life? Would you still have and find significance and purpose in this life? Would you still feel like you are someone of value? You see, if we know who we are in Christ and know our life's purpose according to the Bible, then it won't matter if you have 5,000 FB friends or one. It wouldn't matter if you have 25,000 followers or one on IG or TikTok. Because we should realize our life's purpose is not about getting people to look at me and see what I'm doing. It's about us getting people to look to Jesus and the hope and salvation He provides and seeing what God is doing around the world in people's lives. Then we can say with true honesty, the affirmation and praise I get on social media isn't the source of my happiness. God's approval of my life is my satisfaction and happiness. Think about all of the influencers out there, the socialites, the world-class athletes, the famous musicians, and the prominent people of industry who get all of the world's glory, focus, and acclaim. And they are just like you and me, normal human beings who breathe the same air you and I do, who need food and water to have life, who can suffer the same medical conditions you and I can, and who will all die and have to answer for the life they have lived. Go to any hospital ICU ward and see all of those people who are hooked up to the machines with breathing tubes and feeding tubes attached to them. And you will quickly realize that at the end, it doesn't matter how much money you have, how much influence you have, how many followers you have. We are all on the same path. We all need a Savior. They are no different from you and me, other than the fact that they have more people looking at them and noticing them. But the response is, so what? How will that change who they really are? 
And the answer is, it will not. And my friends, if you realize this truth, it will go a long way in helping you break away from the look-at-me culture and focus on what is truly important in life, a life of purpose lived for God's glory. Look with me at verses 21 to 23. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The Bible tells us that after Lystra, they made their way to Derbe, which is about 60 miles to the southeast, and there preached the gospel, and many came to know Christ. We're not told what else happened in the city, although Gaius, one of Paul's later traveling companions, was from this city, and perhaps he was converted during this time. Then the Bible tells us this missionary team of Paul and Barnabas went back through the cities they had preached the gospel to in reverse order, to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch Pisidia to encourage the Christian converts. Notice in verse 22 that the focus of the encouragement was to be faithful and persevere even through tough times. You see, Paul didn't mince words. He gave them a dose of reality that they would undergo tribulation in their lives and it would be tough for them. But their focus and life's purpose should be on entering the kingdom of God. You see, Paul focused their minds on the eternal rather than on the temporary, the future hope versus the present suffering. Then in verse 23, we're told that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders, spiritual leaders in each of the churches in these cities to serve the pastor and shepherd the people. And before Paul and Barnabas left, they entrusted them into the care of the Lord. You see, Paul and Barnabas realized they could not do it all themselves. God had gifted others to do the gospel work also. In fact, this was Paul's mindset throughout his ministry. Paul himself writes to the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 3-8, to that there is no need to be focused on the self, as everyone has a role to play. Teamwork is of utmost importance. He writes, For you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believe as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. The Bible is very clear. No one is indispensable in the Lord's work. God calls many, and He uses many. We may be unknown and unnamed, but no worries. God knows and will reward accordingly to each for their own labors. That's why we remember that our second biblical principle. As long as we know our purpose in life, it's okay to be unrecognized. What a great pattern to ensure healthy church growth and that discipleship continued in these churches, through the building up and encouraging of the people in the church and the placing of good spiritual leaders to lead. We see clearly from their actions that Paul and Barnabas didn't make it about themselves. They acknowledged that others 
could do the work better. You see, our third biblical principle for how to fight against the look-at-me culture is, number three, focus on others. Specifically, focus on others by creating community, encouraging one another, and fostering teamwork. Focus on others by creating community, encouraging one another, and fostering teamwork. My friends, when you create community, naturally the focus and emphasis will be on others. When you encourage one another, the focus is on others as you take the spotlight off of you and put it on someone else. And as you foster teamwork, especially in leadership, naturally you are no longer the sole focus, but there are others. This is a principle that is not only applicable for the church, but also in any organization, family unit, or even amongst groups of friends. When we focus on others, there won't be a tendency to look at you. Even the secular world understands this truth. In a CNBC article, Virgin Group founder and billionaire Richard Branson explained a concept called the other's mindset. As the name implies, this mindset allows you to focus on others to help them feel more confident while also boosting your own happiness. Branson describes three ways to do this. Number one, create time during your busy day. The day can often slip by in a hurried blur, so it's important to set aside time for the most important people in your life, he said. In other words, make time for others in your schedule. Number two, be a good listener. When spending time with the people who are most important to you, make them feel important and valued by listening, Branson said. Fundamentally, the conversation isn't about you, it's about them. Number three, make someone's day. After completing the previous two steps, Branson said you will be more informed on what is going on with other people. Once you've got an insight into what's going on in someone's life, think about what you could do to make someone feel better or make them smile. Perhaps give them a word of encouragement, write them a kind note, affirm their importance, give them a hug or a pat on the back, and make someone's day. Of course, while we need to focus on others in this look-at-me culture, self-care is also important as well so that we won't burn out and are self-aware enough to make sure we're living a life of balance. But the central question is, what are you doing regularly for others to help guard against a me-first mentality or a look-at-me culture? Are you creating community, encouraging others, and fostering teamwork? I read now verses 24 to 26. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Here the Bible tells us Paul and Barnabas continued on their journey, retracing the places they had visited to encourage any churches established and also to continue to share Christ, as verse 25 tells us. They came to the port city of Italia, where they took a ship and sailed back to Antioch in Syria, where they were first sent out as missionaries. While the Bible doesn't tell us how long this first missionary journey of Paul lasted, most biblical scholars believe it was between one to two years, covering 1,400 miles on this journey. Now, just like we like to share our travels when we complete it, the spiritual success of this missionary journey should be shared to the church that sent them out and this is what happened in verses 27 to 28. Now, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. 
So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Notice that Paul and Barnabas reported what God had done and not what they had done. They acknowledged and recognized the powerful work of God through them. They also acknowledged that they were able to have an effective ministry because God had opened the door for them and moved in the hearts of the hearers to enable them to accept by faith the gospel message. Here, very clearly and simply, is our fourth and final biblical principle for how to guard against the look-at-me culture, and it is to number four, acknowledge the enabling work of God in your life and declare it to everyone. Acknowledge the enabling work of God in your life and declare it to everyone. It's a simple principle to understand. If you tell everyone, it's not me, I'm unable and insignificant apart from God, then it will clearly help you guard against keeping the focus on you and directing the focus, the proper focus, to God. So to recap, to push back against the look-at-me culture and to guard us from having a me-first, self-glorifying attitude, number one, remove attention and glory from yourself and redirect it to God. Number two, accept the consequences of being unrecognized while knowing your life's purpose. Number three, Focus on others by creating community, encouraging one another, and fostering teamwork. Number four, acknowledge the enabling work of God in your life and declare it to everyone. May these practical biblical principles serve as a reminder and a call to action to push back against this look-at-me culture and to guard our hearts against a me-first mentality. May God bless you in this endeavor of pushing the focus away from you to give Him all the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for these wonderful reminders. We see in the life of Paul and Barnabas how it could have been so easy for them to receive the praise and glory as they were thought of as gods in human form. But we saw through their action how they redirected all of the praise and glory to You. May we also do the same. Lord, it is a culture that says, look at me me, me. And sometimes we are influenced by the world, and we only want to savor how wonderful it is for the world to acknowledge me. But help us to understand, Lord, all glory belongs to you. And we pray that we would learn to accept the consequences of being unrecognized, knowing that our life's purpose here is to bring you all honor and glory so that we will be well rewarded when we see you face to face. Help us to do the work of the Great Commission without laud or titles or even earthly rewards, knowing that we set in heaven our heavenly rewards. May God bless those who would desire to live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.